Welcome everyone to the popular show. The popular show, a popular show. Is it the popular show? It's a popular show. Welcome to this special gaming edition of the popular show. Uh, it's um, great to have you all here. Um, we're going to uh, have a fantastic show tonight. We've got so many guests. We've got loads going on. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. We've got most multiple guests from the gaming industry we're going to introduce very shortly. Um, we've got designers, activists, game makers, professors, authors, writers. They're all variously involved in the gaming industry and so on. Um, first of all, though, um, I thought I'd, I'd give a bit of an introduction to the popular show itself. And uh, listen, how to play the popular show. This is your sort of tutorial, uh, how to play the popular show. The popular show is a game show. It's a chat show. It's a politics discussion show. Um, and we... Um, what you need to do to play the popular show correctly is be where you're, what you're doing right now. You're tuning in, you're listening. That's the first, that's the first step. The next thing you need to do is uh, click yourself to uh, that subscribe and like button there. You get one, one coin for that. Uh, and then uh, if you really, really want to play the popular show correctly, um, you want to uh, start uh, supporting us on Patreon, um, which uh, you can find easily enough by going to patreon.com slash the popular pod um that's uh you can now do for one pound is that right one pounds i think that's right isn't it james correct yeah we've uh, we've now got the the one pound just the tip option just the tip uh, you don't really yeah, yeah we've got the tip jar the tip jar is active yeah. give us a the one pound a... tip jar on patreon.com that's uh, another way there's loot boxes in there there's in-game rewards there's everything you could ever want uh, as a gamer uh, so you should be doing that um, and then the other thing you should be doing is just chilling out listening to us uh, meeting us your hosts my name is alfie uh, i'm one of them um, and there's david who's another how are you david and what have you been doing it's been a really great home, uh, day in home ownership we have a toilet, toilet overflow had to replace some doors, but what I'm ready for is some games. And uh, I, I, I was thinking about this today, and, and this is a question I'd like to ask you later. This is not my popular question, but what's more memorable, the first game you played or your first sexual encounter? And I think I think a video game is probably more memorable. Depends on, so, depends again, on the game. I'm looking forward to it. Depends on the game. Depends on the game. <laughs> but listen, um, we, I should yeah, I don't know which one it depends on, but yeah, it depends on both. Uh, but listen, um, we, we should say that we're we're not just doing this live stream. This live stream has become a bit more fun, as you can tell, a bit more informal. Uh, it's basically a kind of game show, talk show, chat show, a bit of fun. But we're also doing very serious content. As you know, we're very serious people, very serious things to say. Uh, and on the popular show this week, you should be on the YouTube and on the Patreon. Um, you can you can you can listen to a full uh, long-form interview with Sretchko Horvat, the Croatian philosopher, author of Radicality of Love um, and Poetry from the Future, who talks there about DM25 and uh, the Progressive International, Jeremy Corbyn's new project, talks about the Biden administration, vaccine nationalism, uh, and um, it's a long-form interview about um, politics in, across, across the globe, really, from an activist who's really involved in those things. Uh, and we've also on the channel got uh, an interview this week with Peter O'Bourne, sort of slightly controversial journalist in the UK, as, as you probably, you listeners probably know. Um, and uh, that interview with, with, between James and Peter is sort of about how um, extremely far right American money has sort of seeped through into British um, 
political classes. So uh, very interesting sort of um, insight really into how uh, American money on the right and uh, has kind of inf influenced mainstream media and begun to kind of um, reach its claws into, Brit into Britain as well, which is fascinating. So check those things out on the YouTube channel and on the Patreon of the popular show. And uh, um, let me introduce the rest of our hosts. Izzy, how are you? Hello, I am great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alfie, for the takeaway beer recommendation this evening. Enjoying oh, yeah. my railway porter yeah, from local pub. I got a huge jug. They delivered a huge jug of beer to my house. This is fantastic. So Izzy and I live down the road from each other. Uh, David lives on the other side of the world in Newf Newfoundland, which I, I, I thought was called Newfoundland. <laughs> and then lastly, there's James. How are you, James? Uh, yeah, I'm very well. I'm making do with my slightly less fresh, but nonetheless delicious Aldi cans. Um, oh, Aldi all right. Well, listen. I think we should. Um, I think we should get started. Really, I just want to say who's coming on the show tonight, and then we're going to kick off with round one, or should we say level one? Um, uh, you know, we've got so many. Um, well, four, four uh, fantastic guests from the video games industry. As as those who know me know, I'm I'm basically uh, an academic and journalist who's interested in politics and games and how to politicize games and make them work for the left and for socialism, if that's possible. Um, and so tonight we're going to be well, uh, joined by um for uh individuals who have done various different things in this uh in this realm first of all mariam Dishkalvite, a friend and comrade of mine who will introduce shortly um and uh then um yeah if anyone has played these fantastic games um, from malay industry um you know things like um to build a better mousetrap nova alia which are games that were uh, influential to me and my students um as, as we've gone through the last few years um, they are, and the, the new democratic um, democratic socialism simulator, they are all new, they're all games designed pretty much single-handedly by Paolo Pedicini, who will be joining us very shortly. Um, and later on, we'll hear from Jamie Woodcock, fantastic author of uh, Marx and the Arcade, uh, and then Kishana Gray, who we've had on before, who is, in my opinion, the best games professor um, she's written several books. She's interested in like con liberal concepts of woke gaming and how gaming has become kind of more woke and less intersectional at the same time. And she's got a very interesting critique of um, games and their position in relation to the left. So it's going to be one hell of a show, guys. And thank you for joining us. Um, and let's now welcome Mariam Dishkalvate, my friend, comrade, colleague. How are you, Mariam? How's it going? Not too bad. Cheers. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. And, and Mariam's like done so much, uh, you know, you should check out her channel Left Left Up, which was a kind of Twitter video channel originally, um, taking kind of, uh, you know, leftist perspectives on the history of gaming. She's somebody who's been really influential to me in, in thinking about how the gaming industry could be reformed. You've been part of unions, Mariam. You've been part of the first ever Game Workers Union. You've been part of all sorts of gaming and left stuff. What's what's going on with you now? Oh, and also, if, you, if any of our listeners speak Lithuanian, uh, you know, what's your Lithuanian channel called? Yes, a <laughs> couple of months ago, uh, myself and a, and a comrade started a political show called Pitchforks and Negronis, which I'm pretty I'm pretty chuffed with the name. But thank you so much for such an awesome little intro. Gosh, you make me sound way cooler than I am. It's like past my bedtime at this point as well. So I'm just or like just clinging on to the adrenaline because it's just yeah awesome to be amongst all of you guys. We're drive time in the States and we're sort of cocoa and slippers time in Britain. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
Well, listen, uh, Mariam's going to join us for um, two rounds of our game show. First of all, Popular Pictures, which we're going to do now before we bring in um, Paolo Perugini. And then uh, then later on, Mariam will be back to join us for the big one um, of uh, Popular Questions. So uh, it's over to you, James, to um, kick us off with this, um, this segment. Popular Pictures. We've seen on the news Popular Pictures. Which one will you choose? I found this picture in my old desk drawer. The most popular picture of all. All right. All right. So, uh, there you go, Mariam. You, you, you didn't expect that, did you? A live jingle. Li you Pull some show, hard you drinks. Fucking live jingle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, what, what Popular Pictures is, is um, we're going to talk about a picture um, that is a, a, uh, a picture of the week that we've decided is the picture of the week. And I'm going to share that picture with everyone now. And um, we're going to have a chat about it. So, um, guys, here's your popular picture of the week. Uh, so what we're looking at here is uh, a tweet um and it's been going around on the twitter on the twitter circuit that there's a there's a weird relationship between putin and video games a lot of games designers doing some funny old shit with uh, putin's palace and so on but this one claiming that putin um, built himself a little dancing room uh in the in the palace there it and, actually uh, gets better yeah. there are a couple of arcade cabinets just around the corner it's sadly you can't see it in this picture but it's full in the video that you know that that's been made by by Navalny's team and stuff uh, I, I think it's fascinating that you know you you know you might be the person that is responsible for the biggest embezzlement you know action in the human history and you still have time for video games i think that's adorable just also just to declare i guess my interest i you know my mom is sunni muslim tatar from Bashkortostans, and so i spend a lot of time in russia so i guess it's just something that i kind of care about and things yeah so i mean what Putin's personal palace, and it's got and it's got a gaming a dedicated gaming room that's yeah, I guess just to give some context, I suppose like a week ago, a video was revealed, like it's like a feature length video uh, by, by, by Navalny's team um, that's now been viewed nearly 100 million times, which is kind of fascinating. That sort of reveals this, this enormous palace that cost $1.1 billion to build. And obviously, I don't think you can only do that from a president's salary. Look, I don't necessarily want to get into, you know, the conversation about the individual itself. But I think, you know, the protests against, the, you know, again, the embezzling and autocratic regime are massively of importance. But another sort of story to, to this whole thing is that I've, I've seen people um, creating like Minecraft models of, of of the palace as well as some in the sims and just like streaming themselves for four hours creating this palace because there are now actual plans of it you can actually like rebuild it and they're talking politics in these spaces and they're talking about corruption and like revolution whilst building these things and i just think it's fascinating how you know instead of necessarily utilizing games that are like overtly political people are you know taking games that don't necessarily have that function but are like turning them again in uh you know kind of on their heads and, and having, you know, especially young people are having, you know, sort of thinking about news in a new way and discussing them whilst, you know, whilst playing games and building these architectural 
objects and stuff. I think it's yeah. just really interesting how people use mediums. Um, so, so my, my um, I don't, I don't have um, my kind of um, personal experience of that is when I was in Hong Kong and I was asking, um, um, I was doing this visiting professorship in Hangzhou in East China, so the start of all my stories. Um, but I was asking um, their, um, their my, my like students about like wh whether they do like you know they get like because obviously there was like a big thing about censorship around WeChat and what you can say on WeChat basically, and they basically said that they they meet their political friends. I, I don't mean they they're, they're doing it as a sort of organising thing where they meet in the basement of Minecraft or something, but they were like they were saying that where they um, have their political debates tends to be. Um, on the audio channels in their online gaming um, experiences. So they, there's lots of people in Hong Kong and China like um, going online together in like just some old first person shooter. I think I'll, I'll bring us back. We'll go back to the image. Um, and, and then like having a quite um, um, a debate which maybe goes beyond what would normally traditionally be allowed to say in, in the, you know, on WeChat or on uh, another attendance platforms like QQ or something. So I guess my, uh, my feeling is there is actually a history somewhere, a global history of like um, discussing politics, uh, maybe even across the, across the line of what's allowed in video game engines. I think there's um there's a sort of given what Marianne was saying about the fact that this is an example of Putin like ostentatiously you know the guy is accused of every kind of corruption under the sun and here he is ostentatiously like performing all this wealth that can't possibly be legitimate. There's a sort of I don't know given the association between gamers and trolling which we're going to be talking about throughout tonight. There's almost a sort of trolling gesture in that which you know has something in common with with Trump. I'm thinking of the 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 kind of um uh, uh the like redesign of the white house gardens is that what it was that melania was in charge of that you know al almost the, these kind of gestures in uh like designing the actual kind of live space of these leaders to like get a provocation or to uh, there's a kind of trolling in it in itself there's definitely the something in the, the opulence of is it's not just it's not a standalone video games room it's a standalone dancing video games room which very much suggests trolling in that there are no actual consoles viewable just a giant fuck off dance floor and a screen to serve that purpose so yeah but it's very not much... real i mean it's not real <laughs> but it <laughs> but, is though yeah. it is kind of unfortunate because uh, because uh, around the corner like again maybe the picture could have been better we should have maybe taken a screenshot from the video itself there are like three arcade cabinets and some of those like kind of like slot machines um as well so so, so it is like a full-on full-on uh games room uh, etc i kind of also feel a bit sad because obviously i submitted this like yesterday and only since then like the whole game spot uh uh you know thing well, that hopefully no, we'll we're, obviously we're gonna, um, talk yeah, about no, we're, we're... that's when it kicked off and that's probably like the event of the week and stuff but uh but yeah i mean again like uh, seeing young generations being really engaged in news and being really mistrustful i think not only of course of of you know the local news but also of the western news because western news have their own agenda for sure so where they're looking for news, you know, sort of, again, in, 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 in mediums that are much more well known for themselves. And, and sometimes also TikTok is blowing up with all of this as well. But uh, yeah, just fascinating to see um, anti-corruption yeah, organizing within, within the game space. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're definitely going to talk about the, uh, the whole very important GameSpot thing of this week. And, and we'll talk um, to you again about that um, at the end of the show I guess Mariam because it's, it's obviously been quite important news but I, gu I guess just on this one before we bring Paolo in um, I think just on this one um, 
you know, that there's something, what, what, what is it that makes this so unusual, I guess, like that, you know, because obviously Putin's masculinity is just center stage and he's the alpha male. And, and then the gaming industry has this connection to the kind of strange new, new beta male or the, you know, the new man of 4chan in Angela Nagel's terms and, and how this kind of weird, um, appear, I think part of the, 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 the sort of global interest in this revelation that these video games are here is this is this crash of masculinity really that you've got these two models of masculinity that somehow come together in this um weird revelation that putin's got these these dancing games and, and dancing games also on the on the on the beta side of masculinity yeah james is nodding away got a comment james well, i was just gonna i was gonna say that i look at this and i see the sort of the decline of the dictator you know when they when they broke into saddam's uh, saddam hussein's palace he had those like ultra like masculine ridiculous like biker paintings of biker babes fighting he-man like demons or whatever so this kind of like parody of, of masculinity in the imagery that Saddam Hussein surrounded himself in you know Gaddafi the guy lived in a tent which is like the ultimate Chad behavior doesn't even need like uh, normal facilities uh, and now finally you know what do we have in our current like hyper, you know, hyper normalized um, uh, uh, kind of autocratic leadership. We have this guy like pretending that he uh, does dancing games, right? Well, yeah, but I think it's also very easy to maybe like kind of almost, you know, to, to, to just have this kind of almost orientalist or, 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 or look at this uh, very kitsch-like, I suppose, um, surroundings or whatnot whereas uh you know and it's very easy to, i suppose to, to 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 humor it or 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 you know and to take the mick or whatnot whereas of course we see people do you know most horrific things and very sophisticated interior design and things like that you know so so we just don't you know can't necessarily fall into the trap of of kind of you know just taking the mick out of the aesthetic because um, oh, don't get me wrong i mean did you see that like redesign for um the oval office that's some you know democrat alliance designer came up with it's no. like um, you, you know with a, a picture of um uh, a, a big kind of black and white picture of martin luther king and a big black and white picture of um uh ruth bader um Ginsburg. yeah 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 so like <laughs> this kind of idea that oh the oval office should have these two like totally decontextualized and like absurd to compare kind of liberal heroes cast on these kind of big black and white pictures so yeah i mean alleged responsible centrist government is also kind of aesthetically absurd um uh, uh, you know reflecting a total incoherence no, of, actually it reminds me of the world. apple commercial from the original apple commercial 1984 and if you remember it was uh, bill gates speaking on a number of screens and someone takes like a like a rock it just throws it through the that screen, and that that's kind of what I'm envisioning on either side. Giant monitors on either side of the of the Oval Office that you can see sort of smash. And I I think what they're trying to do with the aesthetic is to smash that aesthetic. And I think like what is so shocking about this picture is that you have this gorgeous Russian architecture, and then you have a freaking gamepad, which it's like it's the colors are awful here. You know, I mean, so just from an aesthetic standpoint, you're thinking. This is a man so unhappy that he has to put a giant gamepad in. And it's like, who's he going to play with all his friends? You know what I mean? Like, honestly, that's that's the real question. It's like, who's hanging out with him and, and is going to let him win? 
you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I wonder if it's an attempt, sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead, Mariam, go ahead. Well, I wonder if it's like an attempt also to be down with the kids, right? Like I've seen Putin at the yeah. on like hip hop shows and stuff like this, you know, like, so yeah, I'm a yeah. gamer too, whereas he really is, thankfully, hopefully, you know, losing out yeah. on like the young audience or something. Yeah, he wears an Adidas tracksuit and has like a, a 40 of Baltica, you know, I think that's what, Baltica 9, yeah. right? And, you know, just like, just really putting it back. He loves it. You know, he just, he's down with it. You know, it's excellent, really. <laughs> I mean, I, I like that. I think that's a good, a good, I hope it's that, you know, because the idea of Putin um, actually having a little go on his own at the old dancing rhythm game uh, is actually quite charming and, yeah. and you know, w- would maybe bring me up, bring me more on side. Whereas, you know, I, I, so I prefer your take, which is that, he just hasn't got anyone to play with, and this I, is just, I, uh, attempt to get down with the kids. I like, I like the idea. If you've ever seen the the uh, Soviet Russia kick dancing troops over any song, so they'll have like all these dancers from the Soviet army, and they'll put any modern song on it. It's it's a really great account, and for some reason, it gets bounced off of Twitter for God knows reasons. You know, doesn't even have any text; just says the top of the song. I just imagine that he has such a is uh, embezzled so much money. He's actually taking those dances and then put it onto the Dance Dance Revolution machine. You know, like he's not, he's ported, he's ported old Soviet ditties onto the, the Dance Dance Revolution machine. And just a low kick out, out, I mean, you can't beat it. Agreed. All right, well, let's put this, um, let's put this Putin picture to bed and, and, uh, and uh, uh, let's, um, let's move on with the next, next part of the show. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to, to welcome um, Paolo Pedicini. Mariam, I'll leave you there in case you want to um, uh, ask uh, Paolo questions oh, as we go through, but you're, you're welcome to drop out. Um, and, uh, you know, Paolo uh, is, uh, you know, games designer, kind of single, single-handed single uh, games designer of such a large number of uh, important games on the left. And I think that, uh, well, I guess on the left, on, on the political side, um, and, uh, you know, most of our listeners probably have played or, or are playing um, the Malay Industries games. I mean, like I said before, uh, I've, I've been teaching Paolo's games for ages. So it's lovely to have you on, Paolo. Really nice to have you here. Uh, thank you for joining us. And where are you coming to us from? Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm here from, I, I, I'm here in Pittsburgh. Yes. And, and was, that was the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I, I, I've, I guess I've long, long, Long before I came across Molly Industry, I, I, I was like thinking about like why there aren't games um, which are both really fun um, and uh, yeah, good to see some um, some Paolo fans in the old chat there uh, and uh, good like games which are both really fun and really compelling as playable experiences, but also kind of um, you know uh, politically engaged games. Um, because for a long time the rhetoric was, well, it's either fun or politics, right? So uh, whenever politics starts to come in into games, uh, then the fun kind of recedes. And, and I guess what you've been doing is kind of um, combating that assumption. So just tell us about what you've been doing in your own games and and what the sort of relationship between games and politics is in your view. Ooh, well, that's a, that's a big question, but yeah, uh, I would say like for, in case uh, in case you're not familiar with the project, since 2003, I started making essentially like political political leftist satirical games. So they were originally made in Flash. Uh, it was kind of like a spin-off on my like kind of like activist stuff. Uh, the first video game was made uh, for a uh, for a referendum for like a union related referendum uh, back in Italy, uh, and then it kind of like spun off in its own. Uh, 
in its own project. So Mo Industry is this like a rather like a broad uh, idea of like you know uh, investigating games. So not just games as agile prop. There is a little bit of that, but also as uh, making games that are uh, somewhat alternative in its forms as a. Uh, a bit of like uh, an antidote to mainstream games. So the idea that you are playing a, a game, a small, you know, flash game in your spare time, and uh, perhaps that will make you look at all games in a slightly different way. So that's kind of like the, um, I guess, the broad uh, thing. Uh, since then, though, like in, in the like 15 years or so, um, I kind of like branched out a little bit. So like I see like m many different ways you can, uh, you know, connect games with, um, you know, well, like leftist politics. Uh, some of my games are a bit more like uh, media interventions. They are not actually that interesting or that like fun as games. They are more like uh, a bit like that, that kind of trolling that you were talking about in, in some extent. Some others are like very um, on the news, on the news cycles meant to, you know, serve that very specific, you know, function as a flyer basically. And some others are a little bit more academic. Um, and more recently, I made like maybe a couple of games that are trying to specifically, uh, um, in a way, preach to the choir, like the, to specifically engage with, uh, with people who are already kind of my side, <laughs> uh, as opposed to, you know, the wake up sheeple sort of uh, enlightenment idea of, you know, agiprop and uh, pop cultural activism. So it's a, it's, a dark, it's a bunch of different things. I made like uh, maybe like 30, 35 projects uh, between games and uh, non-games. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of there's I mean, what you've what you've done over this time is 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 staggering. Really, you've done you've done so much, like from from sort of games that are about climate change to ones which are about incarceration, ones which are about uh you know getting elected we've all i think izzy and i have been playing the democratic socialism simulator uh today what do you think izzy lots of fun so far telling all my friends um I said to alfie i'm in deficit at the moment but i haven't i haven't got to an election yet so you never know uh, I, I i didn't get re-elected i i kept like um I, basically my strategy was to to like do everything that was like perfectly right from a sort of corbyn marxist perspective but then like smooth schmooze the um the technocrats and they sort of so when they, when you gave me the options like do you want to go for lunch with like a tech billionaire i was like going for lunch with them buying them drinks trying to be part of the kind of uh, community of the tech billionaires but then secretly being a kind of corbyn type activist but i, I didn't get re-elected so maybe that was a bad bad move <laughs> <laughs> Did you play, David? <laughs> you drummed out for anti-Semitism. Is that what happened? Yeah. But no, I, I have to say the game is really beautiful. And I think that that's one of the things that brings people in. I, I think with this kind of game, like your audience is going to be broader than just sort of nerds who just want to play a political game, right? I think because like the, the popularity and sort of gender uh, diversity of the like socialist movement today, you actually have to have aesthetics. Yeah, we can't get just get we are it's just not five guys, sweaty guys in a room anymore. And I think what you did with this this game was really gorgeous. And I, I feel like it felt modern and clean, but also a little retro. And I, I thought that was great. Yeah, that has been a, a bit um I mean, I don't think my my games are really that pretty, but uh, that has been like kind of like a concern of mine since the beginning. I was uh, before making games, I was uh, uh, making satirical cartoon on commission for uh, unions, um, for like uh, the metal worker unions uh, in my in my region, and uh, and the 
they were not they were not fun, but they were also like extremely like uh, old timey. They they had this kind of like almost like Soviet era representation of the capitalists with the top hats, uh, and uh, and were like kind of like bummers. And so since the beginning, I would say we're interested in uh, how to um, uh, kind of like look for different like aesthetic forms. And I and I think uh, especially in the United States with the revival of socialism, there is like a bit of like a retro aesthetic that comes with it. Uh, and uh, it's something that I always try to push back, but it's kind of hard <laughs> because it is kind of cool in a vintage way in the United States because it's not that much associated to old people, old communists, but more like, oh, that's a kind of like a, almost like a vintage uh, uh, or like a, a valuable part of our history. But that's like, it's not a coincidence that in, like in the game there's like no red, uh, you know, uh, or like no, like uh, the, the classic color scheme that you will have. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean that's that's it's it's good to talk about the game. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I really want to ask you a, a lot about how you see um, your relationship between politics and your games. I see people in the in the comments as well are interested in basically thinking about ideology in games, and and this is something that I've I've often thought about myself. And like, you know, I, from the Gamergate side, but my my story is that I was working on literature until Gamergate happened, and then I realised games were more important than literature politically. Um, and switched my sort of track from working on literature to working on games. And I've spent the last sort of five years doing that. Um, and I, so I'm really interested to hear from someone making these politically engaged games like yourself, Paolo, that, that you know, how do you see that the history of games in, the, in their relationship with ideology? You know, like you, you said yourself just a minute ago that you're, 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 you're seeing games as an opportunity to push or, or play with left-wing ideas. Um, but you know, how do you see the history of gaming in this ideological way? Has it been has it been the, uh, an ally of capitalism? Has it been an ally of the right? Has it been an ally of liberalism? And and what's the role of the left in games in your in your view? Right. Um, yeah, uh, that's another great question. You have an hour. Um, it's. Um... Yeah, you know, like I think there is there is definitely a lot of discourse, a lot of like um, you know writing about the uh, the origin of video games. Essentially, like video games has a bastard child of the military industrial complex. Essentially, that's that's how they started. Technically speaking, uh, MIT, uh, you know, Cold War lab, anything that are still like very like much intertwined with that kind of technology. As a as a developer, I always l lament the fact that uh, you're sort of working against uh, layers upon layers of technologies that have been uh, sort of like uh, mm, uh, have been informed by these technologies by this uh, essentially by these goals um i have like a, a talk uh, called like uh, video games in the spirit of capitalism that kind of like tries to delve into that like one one of the main ideas like it's much easier to you know to make a game about shooting than making it making a game about you know petting a cat or sort of, you know like caressing soft body physics and things like that because there is this sort of like a background of like ages of technologies that are sort of like informing the very um, infrastructure the engines the technologies behind that and so like I always feel that I have to work against the grain uh, in a way uh, because yeah, like if you're thinking about the computers, uh, they, they start as ballistic calculation machine. They start as a um, catalogation machine. Uh, you know, like with you know IBM facilitating um, the Holocaust and tracking of certain populations, and so on. So like I think there are that that sort of like um, imprint is still somewhat there, <laughs> despite all these years of trying to hack them into more expressive uh, medium. 
regarding the relationship between, uh, I guess, uh, the left or like the, I, I, I think about it as a, as a point of interventions that you can potentially have um, as, you know, as leftist, as socialist, uh, however you want to call it. Um, and uh, I think there are like many distinct uh, uh, and interrelated uh, uh, approaches. Uh, back in the days when I sort of like started making games, so the main approach was essentially like academic and it was about textual analysis. It's something that critics still do today, meaning that, oh, there is a game and uh, this game is representing war. And uh, now I'm going to show you how this game is uh, embodying uh, uh, ideas of, you know, militarism, sexism, uh, homophobia and so on and that's that was like and it's still like pretty common as a as a critique uh, there are mainstream video games and let's uh, you know let's break them down and and demonstrate how they are uh, essentially like reinforcing uh, the status quo or the system dominant system of belief uh, so uh, my my point my sort of like intervention point at that point like in the early 2000s when game studies were starting to to, to you know emerge was like okay so what yeah I mean like that's a problem obviously but uh, let's see if we can uh, come up with different ideas different forms and uh, different um, like maybe not everything is to be thrown away in this uh, very popular form and so that's kind of like what the starting point of mall industria. Um, I would say, like, since then, like, what what happened is that there has been another, um, maybe another kind of intervention that I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't qualify as uh, uh, openly and blatantly leftist, but, uh, and I'm talking about the uh, independent games movement, the emergence of the uh, independent idea that uh, in order to make different kind of games uh, with different mm. ideas, uh, you sort of have to create different structure, different networks, different communities, um, because not everybody is just like working by themselves like I do. Uh, it's also not my first sort, my only source source of income making games. So, uh, so there is like this independent game games movement that even if it's not leftist and it's not revolutionary, to me it is in line with an exodus from the game industry proper and kind of like a, if not a rebellion, uh, kind of like a bit of distancing from a certain mode of production. Mode of production it is uh, industrial and exploitative, and so on. Uh, what one thing that we obviously know at this point is that um, first, like I, I will definitely like uh, uh, if all the gamers in the world were playing, you know, small independent games from HEIO, but that's definitely not the case. Like most gamers are still playing, you know, mainstream games, and and that's great. And most of developers are not in the position of taking the sort of risk that takes uh, it takes to start your own. Uh, uh, you know, small company, and, and it's not a case that most of the independent game developers are coming out of the industry, and they are often from uh, relatively privileged uh, uh, backgrounds. So, like most of developers are still working in the industry in that sort of structure, and so it kind of like made made sense that in the last few years there had been a renewed interest in uh, uh, organizing those workers uh, through unionizing or like informal unions uh, and in an international way. That's the games worker or not unite. Uh, to be all these things are uh, distinct in a way, but they should like. I'm a more like a yeah. all of the above kind of guy rather than a what about this and what about that. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I personally, I agree with that. And I think that it's very important um, for the games industry to think of itself this way because we, we've, we've, often, we've often thought about like 
you know, it, you know, this is not going to be some kind of utopian thing where suddenly there's a socialist game and everyone's suddenly on board. Um, but I wanted to ask Mariam if she wanted to come in on this because, uh, you know, a lot of what you were saying was around um, this question of sort of the, the kind of global economy of games and the ratio between whether people should play indie games or, you know... The, and for me, you know, I mean, I'm I'm on board with you, obviously, but I, I find it quite like um, boring now to play Grand Theft Auto 5 or something like that. Or, you know, the last thing I want is Grand Theft Auto 6. I, I was in, in fact, I was in fact in um, I was in Watch Dogs Legion, the, the newest Watch Dogs game myself as a kind of commentator. And I, I basically I, I, but I thought it was the shittest game. So I was I was trying to love it uh, because I was in it and I wanted to feel cool because I was in it. But I thought it was shit. And, you know, and, and I think people are getting really bored with, um, you know, this AAA games industry. That's, you know, and one of the things that I've taken from Mariam's arguments is that, you know, you can't have, um, you know, a, for example, you can't have a feminist game, a games industry when, you know, you might have a, a game where your character is um, intersectional feminist or and a strong female lead. But the parts which were used to build the, the machine which you played your game on were more or less made by work female workers in a Chinese factory who are being underpaid with no workers' rights. And so unless you tackle this problem of games development at the roots of global capitalism uh, and move away from AAA games and the kind of shiny, shiny boxes of, you know, whatever it is, Grand Theft Auto 510, uh, and move back towards a simpler method of games production, you're not going to have a games for the left. And, I, you know, so anyway, anyway, that's just my response. And I agree totally with Paolo, but it'd be lovely to hear what Mariam you think as well. Yeah, well, first of all, I think you're kind of optimistic to think that people are, uh, you know, getting tired of AAA games. I think, you know, every year we're seeing, you know, sadly, well, sadly, I don't know, like it, it is still in the industry that I'm in as well, you know, uh, ranking in the, prof the profit records more and more. But yeah, I mean, I guess, and, and it's not to say that it's like some original idea by me. I think all of us in, in this room have written or thought about this uh, in many different ways. But to me, like the big elephant in the room of, of, of the entirety of us even discussing, you know, kind of like critical, ga you know, critical games or, or, or you know, how, how to use video games for, for the left is that it is fundamentally uh, a medium that is built on the blood, sweat, and tears of the people in the global south, you know. And although we are, you know, privileged to sort of have that that type of uh, debate, I, you know, at the end of the day, kind of kill it all, you know. Like just play PlayStation Four emits more, um, and, and there's a whole, of course, climate change debate as well. Just PlayStation Four emits more uh, CO uh, CO2 gases than the whole of Estonia, you know. And that's one console out of all of them you know so as it is our industry is like actively killing people um and i'm not even talking about like militarization of of of, of games you know I'm, I'm talking about the mineral extraction in the democratic republic of congo about the manufacturing industry of course in in, in china and um yeah and again the 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 conversations about unionization as exciting as they, they, they are and also so much action uh, and really incredible what's been achieved in the past three years you know um we can't necessarily stop there you know just us being more affluent in the in the west whereas nothing at all is getting better um when it comes to extraction of of of, of, of these resources of the hardware that is getting only more expensive and only bringing more profits to the conglomerates that are building them you know that just and i feel this i feel this conflict in me all the time because it's like it's where i'm in, you know it's it's the industry i'm in it's hopefully the one that will i'll you know give me the money to save on the mortgage to buy a home at one day you know like and what am i doing really like it's really the, 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 yeah as i say burn it all <laughs>
Yeah. What do you think, Paolo, of all this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, about now, I guess, 10 years ago, I made this uh, little game called Phone Story uh, that kind of like touch upon these things, right? Um, it, it's an iPhone game. It was an iPhone game that sort of like talks, talks to you from the, um, from the perspective of the phone and tells you the story of the phone as a piece of hardware going from the mines in Congo uh, to the assembly um, factories uh, in, uh, you know, in Foxconn in, Ch in China uh, that was during uh, the wave of suicide that was happening uh, in, uh, at that point and around 2009, 2010, uh, all the way through the uh, sort of like the end of the cycle, the recycling that happens also in uh, developing countries, but it's not recycling, it's more like scavenging materials and it's pretty terrible for everybody involved. Um, and uh, one of the most interesting things of that project was that we put together a, um, a companion website that is still up, it's probably not as updated as it could be. Uh, the companion website had all sort of like a possible intervention for all of these issues like uh, oh is there anything that we can do for you know conflict minerals and, and things like that well it turns out that sort of there are like even like without going you know full-on global revolution uh there are regulations that we can apply there are like uh, ways to you know fingerprint minerals and make sure that they, uh, essentially it's all about responsive uh, like putting the responsibility on the producer for the entire supply chain one thing that neoliberalism has been pretty good at is but is allowing a producer of you know like say like apple for example to be like okay we are designing the uh we are designing the the product uh, and we are not really doing anything materially speaking and everything that is outside of the production uh, supply like uh, outside of cupertino is really not our business like we don't really know or care how you know micro microchips are made and uh, i think one like a little something that kind of like change at least uh, at the conceptual level is that now we are sort of like uh, we are in the position of asking for that kind of responsibility over the supply chain it's a reasonable thing and it's the thing that we can do um yeah the problem is obviously like you know you need to have political power and in this case kind of like international and international sort of like clout to you know to tackle uh, international corporations um so because otherwise it's just like you have to rely on uh, kind of like no profit sort of trying to go through uh you know corporate responsibility documents published usually by the same companies right but um, but yeah, uh, but uh, uh, but regarding the role uh, of like I guess Western uh, game uh, developers, uh, I think there is something we can do there too. I do think that uh, video games, especially the triple A kind, are the main driver of technological force obsolescence. Because uh, like uh, right now people are or, like rushing to buy PlayStation Five for some reason that I don't understand because I don't think there is any even in any interesting game out for ps5 but it's all it's kind of like uh, almost automatic of, of course there's a new uh, console and you're you're gonna buy it but yeah the problem is that like my playstation 5 is working and it's totally fine my playstation 4 is still working and i barely touched it um and uh, and it's also like a computing machine that is still powerful and very useful i could uh, potentially use that computing machine to have this call right but now i have to have a separate um a separate computer for that because uh, uh because the playstation wouldn't be able to do that so like they have like this weird situation in which my po most powerful computer mm -hmm. the playstation 4 is just there sitting there and uh, catching uh, dust and it's still completely valuable so um yeah. 
I think like we have to recognize that sort of, and and I think that's more of a cultural battle than a, a political one. I think is, I think uh, we could, we could try to make uh, to make uh, getting the new model of you know the new iPhone model or the new PlayStation as bad as you know as smoking or something something uncool. I think. We yeah, I, I I really want to really want to come in on exactly that, Paolo. I I think the most interesting thing here is that what you just said. Um, you know this is a cultural rather than political battle because this is really interesting i mean on the one hand i, I you know i absolutely agree with you i mean it's ridiculous i'm surrounded by consoles which are more powerful than the laptop i'm using to stream this shit to you uh, and you know if we had some kind of open well not open source because that's a kind of um that's a kind of uh, 90s 90s liberal business model but like some kind of way of uh, making compelling uh, hardware and software to be open and free um we would we would realize that there's actually we're already paying we've already bought all the things all the tools we need to um to produce uh you know the content we want to produce and what we do what we want to do with it and that's that's massively important but i'm fascinated by the idea that you think this is a cultural rather than political battle because let, let, let me rephrase let me rephrase it a little bit uh, uh i i don't i don't think cultural but i would say like uh, uh consumer size versus uh producer size is more like uh, that that is something that you can uh potentially like uh, have the demand uh like it, it can be like you know like the consumer side might meaning like things like boycotting things or you know like not buying i think but you know i mean i get i get you i get the point that like you know one could make the the playstation 5 as evil as smoking um but i think there's a there's a maybe an even more important point um around the the fact that like the one well, you should own this hardware you know if you buy this powerful computer itself it should be open to you to use it to do what you want to do with it you know, and this is a, a a big, obviously a big technological and open open source free software debate. Like you said, you'd rather people were playing games on itch.io. You know, but 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 you know, th there's a big thing here where we need to kind of make sure that you know, I, I don't know, the the revolution could actually happen with the technology that's already in your bedroom. I think there's something to be said for that argument. Anyway, listen, Paolo. Um, is, uh, maybe we can have a last, uh, a, la a last question or something. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you on and, and to think about your fantastic games. Um, and uh, some of our, some of our fans are saying the same. Some of your fans are saying the same. Um, you know, yeah, you're, you're, the ending of Paolo's games are very depressing. Um, oh, in To Build, I nearly cried at the end of To Build a Better Mousetrap. There are different endings in that game, uh, <laughs> including one that is like a kind of like a fully automated uh, uh, luxury communism. I don't know if you reached that one, um, but yeah. Which one is that? Which one is that? To build a better mousetrap. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's one of my like favorites. Yeah. Three yeah, endings. Yeah, okay. I, I, I don't think I did reach that ending. Uh, so, listen, uh, of all the games in my industry, um, you know, what, what do you think? Uh, what do you want to like suggest? Like, maybe, I mean, obviously the new ones uh, we we we're playing, but like, what do you want to suggest from the back catalogue that like uh, listeners can uh, can have a listen to? Uh, well, check the website. Uh, uh, most of them are free and freely available, even if they are or were made made in Flash. They are. You, you know, downloadable as standalone, uh, uh, playable, and they're all like relatively short. Um, yeah, the, somebody in the chat is talking about where to find that. Well, Democratic Socialism, Socialism Simulator can be found uh, pretty much on every platform, on Steam, on Ichiyo, uh, on uh, Apple for some weird reason, on iOS is free, 
uh, and on Android. Um, yeah, so whatever, yeah, whatever your system is, you'll you'll find it for like either free or almost free. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and everyone everyone must do so because um, you know Paolo's games are. Uh, among the most interesting on the gaming left, and uh, and uh, yeah, okay, there's lots of people saying they want to they want to play them, and they of course they want to play them because they're bloody brilliant games. Paolo, thank gotta, you so much. I, I gotta put a disclaimer. It's very much a center on the U.S. political system, and in particular, a year ago when uh, you know Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders is a concrete possibility. So uh, yeah, I don't know what you get from like from, from it as a UK person or European. I do. I, I, I do. I found um, I know I, I'm like desperate not to let you go, um, uh, but like like uh, what I found so good is I love the visualization of like the 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 um, the voter that's closest to you and the voter that's furthest away in this kind of like um, spatial metaphor here at the bottom of the screen when you're playing, because that's that's politically quite an interesting way of thinking about things, and that's wherever you are in the US or the UK. It's a question of like your discourse and how far away from your discourse people are consuming it uh, at a distance or they're consuming it quite closely. I found that quite a, um interesting way of like thinking about the way in which politicians relate to their votership in a in a broader context, actually. Right. I, I you want me to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, go on, just keep going. So that voter model uh, is actually one of the main uh, concerns. Like one of, I think the, the idea get away of that, uh, uh, like one of the pillar, creative pillar of that game. So the way it works is that, yes, sure. Like if you make some choices, you are alienating some voters and, uh, you know, getting other voters, uh, you know, more closer to you and more likely to vote and reelect your, your government and so on. But the, tri the interesting thing, I guess, uh, the things I really ca I care uh, I care about is that each voter has uh, some uh, like two issues they care about particularly it can be like uh, taxes or immigration and the voters are not distributed on a one dimensional uh, gradient between left and right which is a, a really like damaging I think idea that uh, the U.S. bipolar system is sort of per perpetuating and also like the sort of like the liberal media that there are like people that are very liberal or uh, conservative and uh, the ones in between are kind of moderate that is not the way things are uh, the reality is that there are people that are maybe like this wing voter the more like crucial kind of voters in the United States are uh, people who might hold the very progressive uh, ideas as well as very uh, conservative ideas. They might be very progressive on uh, labor rights, but they might be very conservative on immigration rights. And I think uh, that's uh, that makes uh, that makes it more, uh, you know, like leftism more viable because uh, you can totally see from surveys and analysis of voters that that kind of thing exists. And if you have a working class, you know, politics, you can get some of those. Um, you know, in between voters. So, yeah, no, I love that as a way of thinking, as a way of thinking about games in general. Um, I, anyway, Paolo, let's just have a quick, to, quick, just quick shout out about the, like political games. So, for instance, the UK equivalent would be Corbyn Run, that has like Margaret Thatcher, a ghost, and like um, Theresa May in a helicopter. As well as people should also try out Uber Game, which is actually like in the Financial yeah. Times, and that is really fascinating because I think. It being in the center right um, kind of publication, but being a very lefty game, kind of 
kind of changes people's minds, I think, quite effectively. So those are my two shout outs in a similar kind of terrain that all of Paolo's amazing work is in. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, we've 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 had um, a talk about games for the many, uh, the Corbin run people in the past, actually, and we, we should revisit that. But anyway, listen, Paolo, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic to have you and hopefully we'll catch up again in the future. Your games are unbelievable. We love everything you're doing and so on and so on. All right. Thank you. See Good you. Good night. Good night to Pittsburgh. And okay, see you in a bit, Mariam. L- l- listen, it's already half ten. Let's move straight on. Let's move straight <laughs> the fuck on with Jamie Woodcock. That's listen, great. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Jamie is uh, author of this fantastic book, Marks in the Arcade, which um, I've been teaching on my video games degree um, the last year or so. And you know, it's 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 with Haymarket Books. It's one of the it's one of the, uh, yeah, one of the only directly leftist books about gaming, um, and uh, you know, and uh, as I think mine is. Um, um, but listen, it's, let's just first of all, Jamie, ask you what game you played first. That's a really good question. I think it was either uh, Lemmings or. The one with the egg, the the egg explorer one. That game, the game is now oh, yeah. escaping yeah. me. Dizzy. I mean, Lemmings was up there for me, probably one of the earlier, one of the earlier. And um, and also, next question then. Um, when did you become a a left wing or Marxist individual? What's your back history in the terms of your relationship to politics? Completely separate to games. So my my relationship to politics uh, started with the Iraq War. Um, so I was fifteen. Um, and we organized a walkout from my school um, and got involved in, in politics through social movements and then started reading Marx. Uh, and the rest, the rest follows on from that, you know. So, OK, so, OK. And at what point in your history then? So from Lemmings to the school walk, the walkout, at what point did those two things become like one and the same? So I think. I had wanted to write about Marxism and video games for quite a long time. Um, it's been a kind of, you know, when you have two things that feel a bit separate and you want to try and bring them together. Um, and it was really the start of the game worker organizing that made me think, actually, I should I should write that book about Marxism and video games I've been thinking about for a while. Um, so for me, it was starting to see worker organizing in the industry and thinking, as a Marxist who writes about worker organizing, hopefully I might have something useful useful to say in that in that area, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean absolutely and 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 so so to push that a bit more, like why should why should workers who want to organize care about video games? Well that's a good question, right? I mean I think um I think we can come at it from two sides. So the I guess one of the things that I would hope is that people that make video games, kind of broadly considered, uh, or people who are interested in video games can get something from Marxism, that Marxism can help us make sense of the industry, how to change the industry. I guess on the other side, maybe that's a bit more complicated. Um, I mean, I, I was a real shame to miss Paolo talking, because um, in the UK, we've done some experiments with the game workers branch of IWGB about using video games to think through worker organizing. Um, and I think I think you can do some interesting things with games, you know, teaching about, you know, getting to try stuff out, experiment with things. Um, and I think we should have more games about worker organizing. 
Um, so right, hopefully right, that can be something we can bring things together on. Which Paolo makes in some ways. Um, but but um, but to to push more on that, Jamie, like what? Like, I don't know what, what, like, I mean, okay, you, you know, you, 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 you're, you're, you're primarily interested in the question of workers' rights. And then obviously it follows that the gaming industry should be interested. But what do you think on a more sort of, um, on a more sort of cultural level? So, like, you know, people who are not interested in workers' rights already, but are already playing loads of games, you know, because this is, this is a great, I mean, I love Marks in the Arcades. I, I loved every page of it. Um, and you know it's you know but how how does what the question is how does one get somebody who doesn't even know what Marx is or has no interest in Marx to engage with the politics of video games uh, like why should and how do we achieve a situation where like people who are playing games are also thinking about politics I think that's that's the main thing I want to ask you. I mean I guess this is the question around like what is politics right. Um, and I think often when we think about games and politics, we think of a very particular debate that often happens online around politics and games. Um, and I guess for me, like the argument that I try to have with people in the book is, you know, it matters how games are made. Mm. Um, this is not to say that, you know, we're suddenly not going to have any games with guns in them or we're not going to have any games that feature violence. But how your games are made should matter to you if you like video games. Um, you know, thinking about who was involved in them, under what conditions were they made, like this shapes video game culture, right? Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, you know. And we, we, we were just talking with Mariam about, uh, and Paolo about exactly this, that like, you know, you, you got this question of woke games now. So, you know, woke gaming where, you know, this is a, the, 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 there's a great book by Kishana Gray, uh, who we've interviewed before, who will be on, um, on our channel patrons can check out that um and uh, but you know her, her book woke gaming is all about exactly this thing how can how can we celebrate games for being diverse for being woke for being uh you know even pro working class at some points when they are made by people in a chinese factory who are mostly women who are underpaid and the, the whole structure of this industry is based on these inequalities that level of global global kind of capitalism and 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 the, the supply chains involved in the gaming industry we were just chatting about that so you know i think that's absolutely right um and uh yeah but but then then of course what what, what do you want to see uh, what, what do you want to see off the back of that i mean like would you um you can you not add yourself david welcome back david uh i don't know everyone else could add themselves but david david needs me to add him which i like as a sort of masculine that gives us a sort of power play there, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy yourselves. Love the power we play a lot of games. On <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess my question, Jamie, is you know what would you like to see here? I mean, do do you because on if, if you want to you know solve the problem of um, you know Chinese factories not employing underpaid women to make the console parts, then that's one different one kind of activism. Um, but it's very far away from the actual person who's interested in video games. So how do we convince people who love video games to care about people's pay in a Chinese factory or something like that? So, I mean, you know, at a kind of like broader horizon, it's not it's not that I like think people in Chinese factories making games for a low pay can be solved by just paying people more. It's like this is, I guess, the challenge of trying to have this 
conversation with like what do video game players make of this is like i think we should destroy work like overall yeah um so how do we start along that process well i mean i, I guess the first thing is for me if you want to tell someone about how capitalism works today and like how capitalism has changed like how things work increasingly on a global level how work comes together to to create the things that we need to survive i think video games are quite a good example um you know people can imagine those supply chains so i think you can start having an argument with people about how capitalism works and i think you can also start pointing out you know it's not just the low paid worker at the end of the supply chain that's that's the problem with how video games are made right like capitalism also ruins video games um, oh yeah you know, the example I really like about this is I'm a fan of Destiny. And Destiny is like, you can see how it's been reshaped by capital. You know, there's a storyline and it gets mashed up because it, they can't meet the deadlines. You end up with this bit where they say they don't even have time to explain why they don't have time to explain what's happening in the storyline. You get things like parceled up and resold as, as, as DLC. It's like, if you can get someone annoyed about those processes, about the culture that they want to enjoy, you can then start making those links more more widely. Like, why did this happen? You know, why? Uh, yeah. you know, why is production being organised that way? Right. Yeah. Uh, J J I mean, James looks like he wants to to pop on. Pop on. This is my popping on kind of stance. Hello, hello Jamie. Uh, great to see you. I, I'm not actually a gamer myself. Uh, I think the last game I played was the Donkey Kong uh like version they made for the n64 um when i was a teenager i mainly know your stuff through i, I mainly know you as a, a scholar of um of call centers uh your, your book uh, working with phones um so i guess i wanted to ask a slightly different kind of cultural question um one of alfie's maxims that i've, I've taken on is that everyone's a gamer even if you don't personally play video games you know, the invention of cinema made everybody think cinematically. Everyone uh, uh, kind of experiences the world through this kind of hegemonic cultural form that gaming's become. In the same like time that's gone from like when I was playing Donkey Kong 64 and it was just the nerd boys playing it to now when, you know, your nan plays it, everyone plays it, everyone is gamer, even Vladimir Putin. Um, in that same like space of time, we, we could argue that um, the kind of work that goes on in call centers has become hegemonic. Even if you're in universities, even if you're a barrister, your work has increasingly become um, repetitive, uh, de-skilled, script-led, uh, defined by kind of bureaucratic uh, uh, paperwork, uh, and uh, emotional labor so that's become a sort of hegemonic kind of labor just as gaming has become a hege hegemonic kind of subjectivity so i wondered like what your take on those two sides of your work is and whether there's anything like significant about the fact that we're all gamers now but we're also all call center workers uh now um that coincides yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I guess, you know, I would say there's there's obviously a logic between the call center stuff and the video game worker stuff. But, you know, maybe it's also just different different projects at different times, right? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I do think 
games play a big role in call centers. Um, and I think, you know, I once worked with someone who did a lot of writing about gamification and he explains gamification in a way that I think is like, it's wonderful because it captures how utterly terrible this is as a concept is he said, what I want to do is to take game like uh, structures and apply them everywhere else because we should bring fun and enjoyment into uh, into work, into things we don't want to do. Um, and in call centers, that meant, you know, at the beginning of the shift, having to play games, you know, embarrassing games, like games to kind of try and get you going and then compete against each other to sell shitty life insurance that no one wants to buy, you know, make people compete and so on. Is that idea that you can introduce games into work is 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 horrible because, mm. you know, I, I was going to say I didn't mind right. working in a call center like I did. It, I didn't enjoy working in a call center. But being made to then to pretend to enjoy it along the way and have to like participate in these things is awful, right? And I think we see that in increasing examples now, like people saying, "Oh, we'll gamify this," or "We'll, you know, we'll introduce these structures." And I think you know it tells us a lot about work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, see, um, Jamie, I mass- I think this is really getting on to the important stuff now. Um, and 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 so my my sort of take on this, I mean, I've been working on on exactly these topics, really gamification and the question, what is the difference between a worker and a player? Which is why I called this show Ready Worker One. Um, but you know, for me, um, I, I think that game it's the other way around in in a way. Um, what workplaces have been employing uh, as a structure of work has set the precedent for how games are training us to be. So. It's not so much that like workplaces are being gamified and that's dreadful because it hands over the cards to neoliberal capitalism. Um, but actually, um, it's the other way around. Workplaces have been gamified for years because of neoliberal capitalism. And now they're extending that into the realm of logic and, and into the realm of leisure, into the realm of play, so that we can ensure that basically everyone, every worker of the future is the perfectly conformist worker. Um, so, you know, I, I think that everyone's scared of gamification, but it's already happened before people are scared of it. Yeah, I mean, it has seeped into so much now, right? Um, and I think the thing is with gamification is it's a really, what you know, what I'm really interested in is how, how do workers respond to these things? So, you know, is gamification like a management tool that just prevents people from organizing or whatever? And that's, yeah. you know, that's obviously not true because people fight back against these things. But I think gamification is a kind of interesting thing, right? Because, you know, when I'm marking papers, I gamify it with myself. You know, I'm like, I'll mark five papers and I have a cup of tea. You know, I'll mark 10 and then I'll, you know, take a break or whatever. It has like a powerful psychological effect with us. But it's when those things are turned against you, you know, that strips out any enjoyment of it, right? Um, but I also think one of the things I really liked about the forms of resistance in the call center is people made up their own games um, as like a resistance strategy. So, you know, we used to sit around after the, the buzz session at the beginning and think, what's the most like challenging word to get into selling life insurance? And then whoever can do that, like gets a laugh from everybody and, you know, we keep score and, and so on, which management hate because you're kind of screwing up the sales process by like 
talking about giraffes when you're selling life insurance or, or, or like whatever it is. It's like, I think we need to celebrate those moments to see that like neoliberalism hasn't, doesn't have like a total capture over people, um, which I think is quite important. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, like th those excruciating like team building games, of course, then become a sort of form of like bonding, like moaning about the, about the, we, we've sort of seen this actually in like the move online of so much work that like the sort of private chats between colleagues become like you know it becomes a platform for complaining and uh, and criticizing like you know management and, and, and so on um, people find water coolers you know whether they're online or not like moaning about work is one of the most important features for many of us right you have a shared experience you can complain about. You're a, yeah. you're a work abolitionist. I wondered if we could talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, we should say we should say uh, James. Sorry to interrupt, but we should uh, we should mention that James is uh, author of with Mariah Fenerbacher of this book, uh, "Work Want Work," um, which is all about the future of work and uh, how that should look. And then Jamie, yeah, and Jamie's got it behind him. There you go. Uh, and Jamie is also. Uh, work abolitionist position so it'd be interesting to hear what these guys want to want to chat about <laughs> all right well if, if you check out um chapter two footnote 42 <laughs> that's where you are. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah okay thank, thanks for that um yeah well okay oh Marilla and my interest in part of our interest in that book is like this um yeah the, the kind of dream of the end of alienated labor which is as old as the you know the existence of, of communist thought uh, uh, itself um, like that that's um, that's something people have been struggling for for as long as there's been a left uh, but the question that tends to get deferred is what you're going to do instead and I, I'm quite interested in like the ways in which even in the most you know, the, the high noon of alienated high neoliberalism, even here there exist kind of trial runs or rehearsals for what, like, what one does when one is not working. Um, I mean, in, in, in the book, we, we, we sort of critique the way in which they off, these kind of things often end up being quite work-like in themselves. But I wonder if you see, if any, on any level you see gaming the kinds of like parasocial relationships that are created by gaming you know we've, we've had two decades of, of gaming at being at the heart of culture i wonder if you sort of see a connection between like what goes on among gamers and you like the question that's always in the margins of your own political ambitions of what exactly we're going to do when we don't have to organize our lives around work so I guess I'll start with something a little bit glib, which is I'd love to spend more time thinking about what we do after we destroy work, but the, the getting getting to the destroying of work is taking quite a lot of time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's it's almost kind of, you know, I know that's a kind of, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. Um, but I do think, you know, there's still a lot to be figured out about how resistance works, how people can organize, what forms it can take. There's still like plenty of that work to be done. I mean, the thing that I was 
you can kind of point to with games, I guess, maybe is just the like huge creative powers that people put into playing games, um, the communities people build. And, you know, I guess for me, like an alternative to work is just spending time with each other, like spending more time connecting with each other, looking after each other. You know, some of that can be, you can see elements of that with games as well, right? Um, so uh, kind of like not answering your question because, you know, I hope we have, we get to that problem and we're like, shit, we've destroyed work. Like, what do we do now? Like, what a wonderful problem to be left with, you know? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting that uh, for a lot of people, well, let's say for professional class people, or like some, I guess some people in retail, who, people who got furloughed or people who found themselves with a lot of time on their hands at home, uh, this, uh, you know, 11 months ago or whatever, people were saying, okay, we're going to be locked down. And, uh, you know, everyone was saying, I'm going to, you know, read Proust, I'm going to watch all these great art films, I'm going to do all this creative stuff that I always promised myself um, that I would do, and I never had time to, but now it's going to happen. What happened? No one could do it. No one could, uh, no one could do anything creative. Everyone found this kind of enormous creative block, actually. And, and I mean, my explanation for that would be that, that creativity is social and communal, and when we're suddenly prevented from being together and, and interacting with each other, uh, no wonder there's this kind of huge mental uh, block. Um, gaming, like, it is intriguing to me that it, it, it is, the, I don't know, the, the kind of multiplayer element, even even not that, just the, the this kind of weird, like, impulse to community um, that's, we look back on the last couple of decades and realize that it's contained um that seems to like have some of that impulse that that kind of you know communal impulse is is evidence there you can't do anything on your own um and all creativity and all like striving for unalienated activity is a, is a cry for being among other people yeah, I think you've put that really well. You know, that's the thing that so many of us, and I don't know, I'm always a bit cautious to say, you know, that all of us are locked up at home um, because, you know, there are still way too many people in the UK who are having to go into work and could probably appreciate a little bit of isolation, um, mm -hmm. at least to stay safe during the pandemic. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like you can see those impulses and that's why we all, all of us who are working from home or having to isolate, you know, I can't, I feel like I don't want to write at the moment. You know, I don't want to undertake those kind of projects because you can't go and talk to people about them and, you know, hang out in the pub and argue about ideas. All the like best bits of the creative process are like ripped out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, even just on your topic of uh, of call centres, I, I know there are plenty of call centres who have not allowed their workers to work from home, even though, you know, it, it's the most natural kind of work that could be done at home. Um, yeah, which is another story, really, but uh, no, quite right. And I think something that Jamie touched on, you know, the idea of like, 
the, the creative uh, element of the communities that are happening within games, I see there is also there's also potential for organizing as well, right? Because you will see that there is actually a decrease of those type of uh, first person games, right? Where a story is written for you, you know, and you complete it, and that's it. Increasingly, game companies are wishing uh, to create multiplayer games where it is the player that is completing the game, that is the player that is creating, you know, the fake Putin castle or whatnot that that then goes viral and is making that game more popular or something. So in a way, that is labor, right? So so it is the player that is creating the labor that is making the game the game more popular. Is there potential there to you know to withdraw that labor and then perhaps push that uh, that games company to uh, that is creating its consoles to you know not do it under the conditions that they're they are doing it in right now? You know, there's just there's something there. David, I, 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 I just just to really kick off what she just she said that about the portability of your sort of casual labor in in, in this like entertainment world. You know, we uh, t when you're on Twitter, you can't take your post with you, right? You can't, you, you know, we, we spend thousands of hours on Twitter, thousands of hours on Facebook. We're creating, there is no content without us. And in games, all these levels, all these, these mods that people create, all these labors of love that are essentially making money for other people. How do we, one, create a, a real credit system around that where we can actually like maybe have a mutual aid or, or some sort of like social credit that we get as, you know, sort of creators. Uh, platform capitalism. Yeah. yeah, platform capitalism. I like that. And that, I mean, that's the thing that we have to think about. Is like, and, and in what way is it because we're everywhere online, but we're all, you know, only in one spot now. How do we take our what we're doing in one spot and, and apply it everywhere online? I mean, I personally think this is, you know, I mean, this kind of, I'm, I'm so suspicious of any kind of, um, you know, credits for things and like i i personally i i, I saw those 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 um projects like um lauren tax uh wages for facebook which is playful kind of thing uh, and then that ended up being included in andrew yang's uh campaign didn't it that like people should get a couple of credits or something for you know and the problem we, we face here is actually more complex than that because it's it's not about getting a penny for every post you make because a penny is actually less valuable than a sort of golden click of um you know in-game rewards so you know what you what you're ending up with here is a situation where the, the platform capitalists are, are offering you plenty of rewards and they're actually charging you to access the rewards so you know we've, we've a weird situation where basically obviously as as those kind of activists have pointed out for years every post you make is valuable to facebook but you're or to, to Google or to YouTube or whatever it is, but you're rewarded instead in this kind of digital way. Um, but you are actually more than willing to spend. I mean, my, my daughter is five years old. She just turned five last week uh, and she plays a game and she, she, she can spend one hour. Uh, and in that hour, she, she generates, let's say, 50 pounds of 50 coins worth of credit, which she can then spend on a cute little rabbit in her game. Right. Um, but and then she says to me, oh, could I have actually one pound ninety nine to buy another 50 coins, whatever. And, and then this is this is like incredibly important because she she thinks, obviously, as a five year old can't judge too quickly she thinks that her her um, request is valid you know but but obviously obviously the point is it's much more valuable to the game that the amount of clicks she'll spend doing it to the to the product itself so you know 
there's there's a real there's a real issue here that people are saying oh people we should be paid for uh, our contributions to social media but on the other hand we're willing to pay for those contributions to succeed so there's a there's a kind of odd um there's a kind of odd relationship between corporations and things i think uh which maybe only becomes visible when you've got a child i don't know but there it is i mean i'm always a little bit cautious when we talk about value like that is like what value are we really producing when we click on things is like contributing to advertising at least for me has a different role in how society produces and reproduces itself um so i think we are definitely contributing something but i think we can kind of miss like we can hide the work and the labor behind things when we say you know it's 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 the user or the clicking that that's doing these things um and i think also like buy into some of the bullshit about capitalism about where value is really created right yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. platforms were um democratically owned and transparent if we didn't you know trust to the you know mandarins of twitter to decide what accounts were allowed to be exposed to and what we're not, if we didn't trust to, um, you know, the invisible hand of the algorithm to decide what should be held to us, then these platforms, digital media, would look absolutely different. Um, so that that value is just the kind of, like, the value of the click, like, is just the sort of desperate peddling to catch up on the part of the platforms to monetize these sort of very strange strange beasts that they actually are so yeah i get i guess my my sense is that it's not so much that there should be wages for facebook but that facebook should be structured in such a way that the individual click isn't monetizable in that same way yeah i mean i mean i i think i made my point badly to be honest but my point really was this like i mean when i was doing research into pokemon go and all this shit like I realised there were micro communities in the Philippines. Great game, don't touch. <laughs> I mean, Mariam, I'm level forty on Pokemon Go, which is the highest level you can be. Uh, so you know, I'll give you so um, I, have a, I have a quick question. Hang on, David. Can I finish my point? No, the point is just, it's just that, like, um, after a time, I, I realised I could sell this account, uh, this Pokemon Go account that's level forty. I realised I could sell it. And so I started to look into why and how I could sell it. And it um, basically, if you if you capture a, a, a Pokemon that's valuable, um, you can outsource that on eBay or another kind of turking platform to like children in the Philippines, basically. So I could what I would essentially do is I would send my login details to uh, some kind of eBay company. And what these these guys in the Philippines do is they just send loads of kids and children out uh harvesting the pokemon that you've requested and then they're, they're all logged in on your account on their phones running around jakarta collecting their pokemon that you've paid for for seven pounds 99 and then suddenly and then you yourself in the western world you just paid your seven pounds 99 and now your account has a very rare pokemon in which is important and valuable so there's there's this huge micro economy of global exploitation underneath all these kinds of gamification that we casually play and i think that's that's really important and 
And, you know, yeah, what one can't be innocently a Pokemon Go player. You just cannot. No. Very, very true. But also, just being very broadly optimistic, uh, now is very much the time to try and convert some new socialists through video games because, um, you know, Alfie, as as you say in your book, um, like... Uh, like a dream and unlike books and television video games are experienced actively and we have seen in throughout the pandemic that you know, a lot of people who are otherwise avid readers are just like really struggling to kind of have that focus to to just you know get through as much reading as before and at the same time yeah you know you sort of if you're working you finish work and there's something you can there's something very passive about being in one room doing your work and then watching television and that passive experience and this is where video games have that like unique active um existence which is has always been the case uh, in terms of their nature but something we can very much tap into now more than ever potentially in terms of that active aspect i don't know if maybe video games can be part of the revolution or not i don't know i, I don't know maybe they can Anyway, listen, should we play popular questions before we go? Jamie, would you would you like to leave or stay for popular questions? Is this this is the gamified section, right? Yeah, this is yeah, the we're definitely game staying for it then. Staying for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Staying, staying, staying. He's so we keep our, you know, pay pig listeners uh, on board. All right, I'm, I'm on the screen. I better do the jingle then. <clears throat> What is the popular question? Where'd you get such popular questions? What is the popular question of the week? What is the popular question of the week? All right. All right. I'm the host this week. First of all, as host, I would like to show the scores, not least because I'm still winning. Is he catching me up? Um, but as host this week, I will not ask a popular question myself. So uh, my fellow hosts, James, Izzy and David, will each ask a popular question of the week, which is the question they think is the most um, interesting thing to discuss. Our lovely guests, Jamie and Mariam, will choose one question each to discuss. So, uh, you know, you guys, you guys, you've got good here because we've got two, you've got two shots. So you each get to pitch a question of the week. And, uh, you know, we'll go with Marianne first and then with Jamie. Uh, and then we will spend some time talking about your questions of the week. So let's go to Izzy first. Izzy, what is your question of the week? Well, my question of the week is, is money real? Uh, in, in short, that's a roundabout way of me trying to talk about how, as mentioned earlier, the subreddit Wall Street Bets help push physical retailer GameStop's, GameStop stock price up from $20. Uh, early in January to $73 after analysts deemed the stock a clunker and more as we have it if you pick me. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what the fuck went on with GameSpot, etc., and the old uh, saga, the Reddit, alt-right Reddit rising. Uh, James, what is your popular question of the week? My popular question of the week is is there a new kind of man? The <laughs> pickup artist community. Uh, I like the way this they get referred to, right? As if it's 
a village. <laughs> we're, a com we're a community. <laughs> the, is, there, yeah. the, is there a new kind? I, I like what I like, James, about the way you pitch your questions. It's like every time it's like you, you, you sort of thought about something really, really in depth and academically. Like, and then you always put in the same tone. Yeah. Is is there is there a new kind of man? Could sound the same. We <laughs> love tones. to see it. We've got three tones. I keep it simple. Yeah, is there a new kind of man? So you know we're familiar with the the taxonomy invented in the kind of pickup artist incel uh, alliance, um, where you know the 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 gamers <laughs> the gamers self represent them selves as uh, as uh, these guys who are left out of the sexual economy beta males uh, they're the worker bees um, who, who get married as long as they're providing and then in this you know misogynist uh, pyramid at the top you've got alpha males who are the ones who you know dominate um, everything uh, the community has posited that there is a new kind of male that's been discovered equal to the alpha male in sexual attractiveness, but different, called the sigma male. Uh, yeah. If you want to know about the sigma male, then you'll take my question. All right. All right, James. So what's the question? Is sigma, is sigma better okay. than alpha? The question is, is there a new kind of male? Is there a new kind of male? Oh, David, David, yeah. it's your turn. You've so got I, some I, really I, big things to follow. So I, I, I identify as an Alpha Sigma Sigma, or as we call an ass. Um, <laughs> your Alpha yeah, Sigma right, cusp, right, David? Yeah, it's actually. It, alpha exactly. Sigma rising. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah, and one of the things I, I, I really am looking forward to, maybe we can do this in the popular uh, graph of the week. There's been a number of very strange pickup artist graphics explaining what James is talking about that are pretty interesting. Um, but what what I'd like to ask today is, um, first of all, how, when's the last time you took a corporate survey? Just recently, probably recently, if you got, if you wanted to review a game or you're, you know, the, you, at the end when you're trying to check out and when you're, you're hard-earned money and you have to say, would you like to take a survey right before this? Well, one survey that was sent out today that is quite interesting is the people who put on Burning Man sent out a survey uh, an Alchemer survey, which is a, a, a very corporate, is that you might have used uh, Alchemer. It's the former uh, survey monkey people, I believe. Uh, they've, they've professionalized their, their service and they're now providing analytics into corporate, uh, people centered corporate campaigns. So the survey asked should there be a, a Burning Man this year? And if you aren't going to attend, why are you not going to attend? And the question I want to ask is, in the time of pandemic, when anyone, everyone is wearing a gas mask, not just the people at Burning Man, should Burning Man continue in the time of COVID? All right. Okay, guys. Um, so you, I'm going to try and sort of summarize these, these, these um, quite rambling questions myself. Uh, first, you've got um, the choice of, is he GameSpot? Gambling is Reddit killing the status quo? Is Reddit all right? All right? He said, "Is money real? Is money real? Is money real?" And James, James, what's your question? Is masculinity completely changed forever by the Sigma? And David, should Burning Man ever continue? Mariam, you're first. Uh, which question would you like to discuss? 
I mean, my Twitter timeline shows that that there's one particular topic that's all I've been thinking of in the past 24 hours. <laughs> that's uh, that 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 is most certainly the the good old troll coming from the from the Wall Street redditors, right? Right, <laughs> but, right. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is a great topic. So, Izzy, you get a point. One point for Izzy. One coin. Oh, uh, thanks for that. And let's let's have a chat about that. I mean, so this is Reddit versus Wall Street again, uh, which we've seen before. Um, but yeah, this time it has a little bit more of um, anti-capitalist uh, rhetoric than it did when it. Oh, what do you think, Mariam? Why did you pick this question? Could, could you just tell the story for anyone who hasn't like got their head Yeah, uh, uh, gl gladly so. Why not? Um, I even got Investopedia open up to, to, to explain what a short squeeze is, I suppose. So GameSpot is a struggling, uh, well, up until recently, has been a struggling retailer um, chain. You know, a, a lot of their um, uh, buildings have been, you know, IRL and stuff like this, and their share has been dropping uh, in the past couple of years for sure. And so there have been uh, you know, Wall Street investors that have been betting against their uh, against that that their share, uh, hoping for for massive profits to to come up. However, <laughs> some well, I mean, I guess we can call them trolls. Some people have started organizing on 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 Reddit. Uh, amateur amateur investors, ones that that have like a Robinhood account. Robinhood is is an app where amateurs can uh, can trade stocks. And they decided to collectively mass start massively investing into the GameSpot um, um, uh, stock. Uh, in effect creating a short squeeze. What is that? That is a term to explain that a short squeeze occurs when a stock or other asset jumps sharply higher, forcing traders who had bet that its, that its price would fall to buy it in to buy it in order to forestall even greater losses. Their scramble to buy only adds to the upward pressure on the stock's price. So what we've seen in the in the last, well, I think it's been going on for a couple of weeks now, but certainly in the last couple of days, uh, just a fresh, at one point, I think uh, GameSpot's uh, price was the same as like Apple's and Tesla's. I mean, and this is a fairly like value-less company as such. So, uh, and, and, you know, so laughter, laughter, fine, amazing. Someone made out of $2 million or $22 million out of $50,000, hilarious. But it, it's because it was such a like, internet and troll led um i suppose endeavor that got really freaked out the you know the professional managerial class of the uh well the profession kind of like i guess um I suppose suited and buttoned class of the investment types and they've been rah 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 very very unhappy sort of uh, talking only on twitter but also pushing the um the regulators to to clamp down on this reddit um uh, thread and whatnot and i mean so so okay so I think the Redditors themselves, and there's some like, you know, kind of manifestos written by them, how this is, you know, this is how we bring down capitalism or whatnot. And, and there is this certain uh, flair to that. But I mean, come on, like they're still engaging in the same, uh, you know, in the same networks that, uh, that have already brought all of us so much grief. Uh, sadly, this is kind of a bubble rather than, you know, people actually then now collectively organizing as to where they're going to put that money and stuff like this. 
uh, and you know, someone was sort of tweeting, you know, this is twice uh, as funny uh, and twice as uh, effective as like Occupy Wall Street was, which is kind of sad because that was one of like really, really important moments of my political education as well. But um, but yeah, absolutely fascinating and we'll see where it goes. But I'm not necessarily optimistic. It's just kind of funny. Well, I, I mean, for, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with it to a certain extent. Um, I, I think it deserves credits um, in the, not only in the games. So Izzy, you've drawn level with me, which no doubt will leave you going to bed with a comforting sense of success. Um, Absolutely. But, um, but more importantly, um, you know, I think, I think that, um, I think that there, there, there's a, there's a strange um, hostility on the left towards uh, things that are happening, which are, um, uh, radically different or putting a spanner in the works and and we're we're always so quick on the left to be like oh it must be some all right all right people on reddit mm -hmm. but actually you know i think in fact you know this was the whole saga with anonymous it was the whole thing with the um with the you with when anonymous were um you know when anonymous did the um takedown of paypal because of julian assange's situation everyone on the left was like actually i don't want to identify with that because i'm not my Myself sure whether Julian Assange is cool, um, and you know I think uh, this this incident we should embrace it as a rupture, you know, uh, rather than caring about whether the Reddit alt right is still there. And oh scared. yeah, you know, yeah like, that, you know, there are no there are no fascists on Reddit that we need to kill. The, the point yeah. is there is a there's a thing here to there's a point there's a mechanism here to challenge the the liberal status quo and that's that's the one to go for not the sort of scare tactics of the the reddit alt writers have gone for fucking games can, can, can i give a, a little bit of the history there so um in, in 2008 uh this is to me a fascinating little historical ah. coincidence um steve bannon was uh, working for goldman sachs and he was in hong kong and um, they, they were um, they, they were trying to acquire some like company, uh, and one of the things that they did was um, they ran these like warehouses of gamers in um, in Asia who were playing War World of Warcraft. Uh, maybe this is a, 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 an old uh, uh, tale that. that gaming people know all about but um for, for everyone else the they were playing world of warcraft and they were earning the weapons and gold or whatever it is that you have to like use in the game and then the, that company was selling these in-game benefits to western gamers who like wanted to cheat and get onto the good levels or whatever and there was a sort of rebellion by the gamers uh, against this practice, um, I, 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 I didn't really get my head around what the technicalities of it was, but Bannon described this on Breitbart uh, um, as, uh, which he would shortly after become the editor of, um, as this kind of um, revelation of how gamers were a kind of political, were capable of, of a sort of political action. So he, um, in in the sort of telling of the of the tale of how Bannon came to Breitbart and then to Trump, is that sort of Bannon was the uh, uh, kind of connection between the Trump campaign and the 
outright and this sense that this kind of anarchic unpredictable kind of trolling community of of of, of, of the online subculture could be politically useful and i mean that that's part of the long story of of, of gamergate uh, which inevitably you know would get get raised on this show but also all of those like organized campaigns to um like give bad reviews of the all-woman Ghostbusters movie uh, and of the allegedly woke Star Wars new films. So we've seen all of these kind of organized activities deployed for like right-wing or or socially anti-progressive kind of measures. And now we see the same energies being applied to like trolling Wall Street effectively. Um, and 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 it is trolling because surely like this rundown games uh, uh, shop chain shop has a kind of ironic. There's a sort of ironic affection for this in the same way that there was an ironic affection for the original Ghostbusters. It's not like this is a kind of actual thing they're committed to seriously. There's kind of a joke in that too. Um, so I, I mean, this sort of follows on from what Alfie was saying. I, I, I guess what I'm interested in is the like political promiscuity of this, that it can be a, a, applied seemingly like passionately to anti-feminism, passionately to um, uh, uh, supporting Trump, or it can be applied passionately to like a, a, a kind of disrupting Wall Street, just as passionately as it could be applied to protecting the integrity of World of Warcraft. Um, I, I think that like this is a sort of example of how I think a a lot of people look at the right today and look at right-wing subcultures and look at right-wing populism and say that it's like the expression of a really deeply held political commitment. You hear that with, you know, sort of the reactionary political professors like Matthew Goodwin and so on, who say, you know, right-wing populism comes from deeply held values. You hear it on the left. Oh, Trumpism, etc. It comes from inherent white supremacy. Um, but I, I, I just don't see that kind of inherence in this at all. I, I, I feel like events like this show the kind of promiscuity of these things and, and actually the, the process of participation and the process of like the spectacle is frequently much more uh, the, the, the thing that these people are libidinally invested in rather than the actual content of the politics. I, I wondered if that's something I guess would agree or disagree with. I I think I think that it, it is libidinal, and I actually I do think that the left has an, has all sorts of anti-libidinal aspects when it comes to organizing and action. Um, you know, you could see this type of thing. It's like it's you know even you know I mean I, and I, this is like a more of a tangent, but you know I think even in some of the sort of presented sexual presentations that people have about like their sex life. There's people in long-term relationships claiming to be polyamory because, you know what, everybody gets a ride in the left, right? It's like this really interesting sort of thing where we don't do the hard things if we can't participate in them, right? So there's, you know, like a lot of people are, are saying that door knocking is ableist. These types of sort of weird sort of things that, you know, we need to see who can participate where and why and how they do it. And I think we get really picky about other people's practice and how they, how they operate and what, what it counts as direct action. I think that this could be something that is very trolly. It may smell gross, but it could actually be really wonderful. And I, I, I think that even if it was just run by right-wing trolls, it gives left-wingers an idea. 
And I think that that's, you know, it's just like brigading on, on Twitter had previously been sort of a right wing thing. Anybody from the dirtbag left knows that you can you can harass a Washington journalist into a better opinion. Yeah, and just going back to going back to James, what in, in terms of how it can be perceived as a leftist collective action. I mean, I realise, of course, a whole bunch of um, Reddit users who are potentially all right becoming millionaires overnight is is maybe not the most socialist of things. However, um, just to, going back to just some of the the background. So just to clarify, for fun, um, people on Reddit started pushing up the price of GameStop through a meme war, power of memes. Um, and as we've seen, like lots of hedge funds have been betting on it going down, um, but that's not what happened. And just to pick up um, what was mentioned before in terms of short selling, um, uh, kind of boring thing, but just to explain a bit, um, in short, the more short selling stock goes up, the more hedge funds have to commit because it's to do with leverage. So where you borrow more money, uh, where you borrow money to bet more than you have. So in short, what happened is that the hedge fund bros dug themselves into a hole, basically doubling down on their losses to come good later. Um, but because the contracts are timed, um, they're about to come June, the price is high. So it's a long roundabout way of saying um, all of this opens regulatory issues because hedge funds and banks have so much money normally that they can change the price when they buy stuff, like changing the odds when they bet. So this is the first time, um, seemingly, uh, in this in this space at least, where you know, general people have collectively shown that same power. So, uh, you know, if banks try to organise to do this, it's illegal um, because, because, you know, they would be operating on inside knowledge. Whereas, you know, for, for these Reddit users, it's not illegal because they don't have that knowledge. They're just fucking around and they've made a fucking killing off of it. Um, and so that, that's what's kind of radical in that respect. Um, but, but the, you know, the, the, the issue now is that banks want to um, literally make stock memes illegal to prevent this from happening again. Um, it's huge market distortion and make it harder for people to trade. Um, and so what is happening now is you've got these hedge fund managers asking the government to protect their power and ownership um, as people uh, people now realise they can beat them at their own game. So in short, it's a massive class issue that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, when I look at this happening, I think first off, this is brilliant that a hedge fund has overleveraged and screwed up and now those people are not going to be able to continue their predatory practices to the stock market. That's like objectively a good thing that some rich people lost a load of money. Um, and I think we should cheer when that happens because they make their money from short selling stocks. Um, but the other thing about this is like, whether it's a right wing, whether it's all right, whether it's secretly progressive or whatever, I think it's a really good opportunity to talk to people about the stock market. Yeah. Because mm. I think what you're saying is like, when you, you say if a bank did this, it would be illegal. But then also in the news, there was Nancy Pelosi investing in Tesla shares just before the, the announcement around electric cars came out. Is like the stock market is like a place of fraud. Like, and one of the best things I saw about this was somebody said, oh, don't worry, like the changes in the stock price, like they won't affect the bricks and mortar store. And you kind of have a moment there of thinking, well, uh -huh. what the fuck, what the fuck are they trading on then anyway? Like, what is this? Yeah, and I think... Doing? Yeah, and we have to draw attention to like imagine if you're working in one of these in one of these stores, right? 
these are like horrible places to work often they're like massively surveilled they're low pay like people get treated badly in them and you see other people making money off betting which way the price of the stock of the company is going to go is like you know i'm not saying like financial accelerationism is the way to go but like we should draw attention to this and be like this is a problem you know suddenly people can see some of this stuff in a way that makes sense yeah. to them or whatever and just like draw attention to that contradiction um, yeah, and celebrate rich people losing money right absolutely agree with that Matt, i think that's a really good point jamie i think that you know seeing this as an opportunity seeing this games game stop thing is opportunity to get people to think about the stock market is perfect is that is exactly what we should be doing with this moment marianne what do you think yeah, no, I just one of my favorite takes as well about this was a business insider columnist saying, I know people think this is fun, but why do we have a stock market? So productive firms can raise capital to do useful things. Detaching stock price from fundamental value makes the market serve the real economy <laughs> worse. And I'm like, dude, all right, should we talk about Marx now? <laughs> like, these people That's really me. think that they are creating value in stock markets, which is to me is fascinating. And exactly like, you know, like James said, this is the moment for us to open open the tomes that we have done things somewhere you know and be like all right let's talk about this you know yeah and that is fascinating that like it just it, it just becomes so barely open that the, the the absolute uh just the, yeah just the, the mirage i suppose of what value is or how it's created yeah that's exactly it the, the mirage is like is what we are what's happening right now is every single wall street tech guy knows seeing that everyone on Reddit is realizing that the market is a fake invention and, you know, and posting, but then talking about it's like the moral crisis of our time. I mean, that is objectively very amusing. <laughs> but where is the left? I mean, again, exactly like you're saying, you know, this should be our moment to precisely, yeah, talk about this in a much more organized manner. But where are we? Like, oh, I know some of these guys are might maybe sexist. So like, I'm not going to get involved. Like, please. Yeah, it's a shame that we are so disorganized and so at each other's throats that we are unable to actually uh, welcome some of this potential for solidarity. Absolutely. The, um, a series of like uh, investor apps. I mean, this is predatory as well. This idea yeah. that you, you know you should be downloading these stock market apps. It, it's marketed to people well, who don't like, know, don't yeah, understand. Yeah, but they were taken online as well. So that's that. These apps are just don't just allow you to to buy stock. They allow you to borrow money to buy stock. Yeah, it's which, totally which, fucked up. Which, if it was that's an that's actual that's bank, would be illegal. I mean, that, yeah. that's actually like that's the interesting part is that this is actually outside the regulation of actual stock market uh, and security. Yeah, so you have to have a church and state aspect in a traditional bank. That's what like that's what, like what, like Glass Steagall was about, but that was repealed. But still, there's some remnants of that left over in the regulatory scheme. But because it's a it's an app, it's allowed to do this. It should be yeah. a radicalizing moment, you know. I mean, it's very triggering for me. Like, oh, they took the app offline when people weren't playing right. It takes me back to Bernie in Iowa, you know, <laughs> the 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 the, um, the turning point of uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, where oh shit, the voting app was fucked up, and now we don't know uh, who won Iowa. Um, like. It, you know, if that didn't uh, if that didn't radicalize you, the fact that um, you know you think think of uh, you know the most iconic scene of um, of of, uh, of of trading in in cinema, um, the the uh, the run on the bank in It's a Wonderful Life, where uh, Jimmy Stewart is is building a loan company, has to stay open until the end of the day, otherwise. 
Potter, the arch capitalist, takes ownership of it. This is like if if Potter was the one having the run on him, and he just decides to close, and it's fine. That, that's what's happened today. You know, the, 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 these apps are only there to be uh, uh, vultures and parasites. And as soon as you turn the tables on them, they just get shut down. Oops, oh, someone uh, uh, reset the mainframe. You know? Picking up on David's point, it's just to explain, it's you're not buying a share. You're buying the potential to own a share in future. So you're making money, like if you do make money, about how it moves in the meantime. So it's just just to explain how fucking horrible and <laughs> even more risky it is than, than the usual shit. She just stick to gambling on Counter-Strike skins, right? Like a much safer market. Exactly. Varoufakis approves, right? Varoufakis used to work for Valve, um, actually engaging, well, building the economy for Counter-Strike skins. Who did? Varoufakis, Yanis Varoufakis. He, he worked yeah. for Valve? So he was also an economist for EVE Online as well, right? Uh, not sure about EVE Online, briefly. but yeah. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. yeah that's, very, that's very interesting stuff. Well, I mean, it ha I guess it has to make sense, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that these games are so huge. It's so sophisticated. It's not It's not like SimCity was when I was playing it on, you know, in, you know, an Apple, you know, a, a 250 dial-up or whatever. This is, a, this is a pretty, I mean, these worlds could be, like, much bigger than any city that we're used to, right? So I guess they would need a, a, like a real marketing working economy. Absolutely. So you need Yanis Varoufakis. If you're making SimCity uh, in this day and age, there's no way you can make SimCity without Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, so it's no doubt he would be, he probably, he probably is behind all of the city simulators that we're playing. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I think it's nearly, uh, it's nearly half past 11, guys. I think it's time to say good night. I would encourage people, myself, to tune into this live stream every Wednesday night, which you can do, uh, and listen to us talking about these things. Uh, you can you can subscribe to us. You can follow. You can like and subscribe. You can follow the patreon.com slash the popular pod if you really like what we're doing. Uh, and what you're going to get is a kind of um, casual, relaxed uh, live show, plus uh, lots of questions, lots of games. And we're pissing about. We, 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 if you're a patron, you get the pissing about stuff, which this this what we're now doing is now is, is going to be part of that. But if you're just not a patron, uh, not a patron, you should you'll get all the uh, all the all the perks, all the the uh, things we're doing on the popular show, on YouTube, on Facebook. Subscribe, like us, and so on. Massive thank you to Mariam Dushkavite and Jamie Woodcock for joining us tonight. Good night, guys. Thanks for coming. And uh, it's been fantastic to see you all. all thanks right. so much. It was great. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much.